back today to the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, last week we talked about uh, some special things on Anniversary Sunday. Had a great, great, great day. And, uh, you know, but uh, we're back now. We finished uh, the uh, marriage section, chapter 7. Took us quite a while, but there's so much in there. And uh, we're basically getting an overview of how each book of the Bible portrays the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of turned into a mini-series, but that's okay. God's got his freedom to do whatever he wants to do with it. And uh, we, uh, we've been talking about how Christ is portrayed in each book of the Bible. We know now that in the book of 1 Corinthians, Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord. And this is the central issue, the central problem with the church at Corinth. They're operating in a concept that, you know, Jesus is not Lord. They're, they're, not, they're not, everything they're doing, they're really messed up on. You know, I told you uh, last Saturday we had our Bible basics class. And, and let me just say this. I, with so much going on, I really neglected to say anything about this. Uh, forgot to do it, really. Uh, but, but we had over 100 people for our Bible basics class last week, and it was a great time. And I think the thing that really made it more special than just all of the people coming out was watching all of the older Christians help the younger ones. You know, you were show, I watched how you were showing them how you put things into your Bible. Uh, many of them had questions and you were helping them. That is really what it's all about. And that really is a great thing to see that not only are the new people grasping the material and have such a desire to learn it, but the older Christians, those that have been around for a while, actually taking part and helping them put it all together and grasp that material and showing them how that you, you do it in your own Bible. And you remember, I've told you many, many times, this is why we sell the wide margin Bibles. The best study Bible uh, that you'll ever have will be your own. And you put your notes in it and we try to help you to do that. But you'll remember that I told you that it, the Bible and the key to the Bible is simply learning how to rightly divide the word of truth. And the Bible has divisions in it. One of those divisions that we talked about in Bible basics was the aspect when God divides something, it brings about a contrast. When he divided light from darkness, light and darkness are a contrast. Heaven and hell are a contrast. You know, uh, the old nature and the new nature, it's a contrast. And, and that is absolutely one of the greatest keys that you're going to find anywhere within the Bible. Probably one of the single greatest things you'll ever find. And, you know, I brought, point that out to you uh, back then because you're going to use that concept in everything you do through the rest of your Bible. And we're going to obviously build on that in July, then again in August. And if you're real good, I'll give you a special bonus in September. But when God divides... He teaches us by the contrast of what he just divided. You know, when I went into the ministry, and this would be back in 1976, we came to Kansas City. Uh, I was hired in 1975 at the end in December, flew out to Kansas City, and then we moved back out in 1976 in January, right after the first of the year. And uh, when I came here and, and, and went into the ministry, uh, the education that God gave me as far as how to build a church and how to pastor a church was very unique. And it's something that you never get in Bible college. It's something that you'll never get uh, any other way than getting on-the-job training, so to speak, which I think is the best training you can ever get. But God put two men in my life. And those two men were two men who I can honestly say today 
taught me everything about the ministry and everything about pastoring and building a church. There was a third man that I would throw in that equation that taught me about the Bible. But about building a church, pastoring a church, and the day-to-day operations of a church and everything you deal with it, there was two men that God put in my life. One of them did it phenomenally well. One of them would be, in my mind, the best example of you could ever have of how to run a church, pastor a church, and do the things in a church the right way. The other one was a great example of how not to do it. Probably the worst example of a pastor, a worst example of building a church uh, that you could ever find in your life. And that was very unique in my world, and I, I know God does everything differently with different people. But it probably uh, was the single greatest thing that God had ever done in my life as far as uh, me understanding and basically seeing the ministry. Because what God did for me was give me a contrast. He showed me one who did it really well, biblically, by the book, so to speak. And then he showed me one who did it by the political, by man's wisdom. Had very little to do with the Bible. It had everything to do with politics, everything to do with the, the monstrosity that we call a church today. And for me, it was the single greatest thing that God ever did as far as teaching me the ministry. I think a lot of times the new Bibles do exactly the same thing. They form a contrast of what is real and truth versus what is man-made and not true. And I think that everything in life will fit into that aspect if you just start to observe it. I know for me, my whole life and everything I've learned about God, the Bible, and certainly the ministry has formed around that great contrast that God gave me. And when you have a contrast, it's, it, it makes things like, you know, like day and night. It shows you the thing that is right and how good it is and how absolutely God honors it in the Word of God. And then it shows you the other side that is usually man-made, man-contrived, things that man puts together that have nothing to do with the Bible. I say all of that because this is exactly the same thing we find in the book of 1 Corinthians. God sets up a contrast in this church. And if you're paying attention, this is a very rich book with a lot of great biblical principles in it. You know, and I know most of you don't understand what I'm about to say yet, but hopefully you will in time. You're going to realize that most of the things that you learn in life about God and the Bible and, and the ministry and certainly the things of, of, of God, you're going to find that God shows you by contrast. He's going to, if you're paying attention, he'll show you what the real deal is and he'll show you what the wrong deal is. And you know you can take that almost to every aspect of your life. <clears throat> the Bible will show you what kind of friends you ought to hang around versus what kind of friends you should not hang around. The Bible will show you places you should go and places you definitely should not go. Everything is built on the form of a contrast. And, you know, it's something that, you know, it's around us all the time. We never see it. We never totally understand it. But as you mature and you grow to the place in the Word of God that you get to, you begin to see and understand exactly how, how it works. And that's really the key to the book of 1 Corinthians. And the principles that come out of that, the principles that you learn from that, are things you never want to forget. They form a mindset. Principles form a direction of life. Principles and the examples of contrast give you a pathway 
that you stay with where God wants you to stay. And, uh, you know, you never get off the track. And that's, that's really what the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. It's a tremendous chapter. And I want to t- today continue, as we come through it, to point out great principles that if you're paying attention and you're smart, you're going to write these down and you're going to use- begin to use these. We saw in chapter 1 how that they're really all messed up on who baptized who. They're actually accrediting some kind of spirituality uh, on based on how uh, the person had baptized you, how spiritual they were. If you were baptized by Paul, then that seemingly means that you, you're a great spiritual person. If you're just baptized by Joe Schmo, somebody nobody knows, then you're a lesser of a Christian. Of course, that's ridiculous, but that's a contrast. In chapter 2, we see the basic fundamental problem in this church. Didn't take long to get there, did it? The basic fundamental problem in chapter 2 is they're not following the Bible. They're using man's wisdom. They're following man-made ideas, trying to work them into the church, and it's causing all kinds of problems. And this is much why I said when we started our book uh, that most of the churches you find today, Baptist churches anyhow, they're just mirrored images of the church at Corinth. And they're not following the Bible, they're following man, man's wisdom. In chapter 3, they're actually arguing and attaining some kind of spiritual notoriety of who won who to Christ, just like they did in chapter 1, except that one was about baptism. In chapter 4, they failed to be stewards of the mysteries of God. And we know that there's seven mysteries in the Bible. And uh, again, how many churches across this country uh, even know that, let alone take the time to teach those seven mysteries? And yet, the whole Bible basically is built on those seven mysteries. Chapter 5, we see that they're having a a tolerance for sin in the church. They're not dealing with it biblically. And uh, they're all divided over how to deal with it. Chapter 6, they're taking each other to court over civil matters. Somebody is hosing somebody and somebody's doing this wrong to somebody. So instead of bringing it to the body of the church to deal with it, they're taking it to an unsaved civil court. And then we got into chapter 7 and we saw the aspect of, of marriage divorce and remarriage, and how the church should deal with it. And this book is one of the most important books in all the Bible um, as far as ministry because the whole book forms a contrast. And contrast is so important in your life and in my life. Now today, we're going to look at two more great chapters. And I've kind of got this thing laid out uh, uh, to kind of break it down in chapters that will give us work eight and nine go together. And uh, in chapter 8, and in this chapter, we see the number one trademark of of what we call spiritual babies. And you'll remember that in chapter 3, verse 1, he called this whole church a bunch of babies. So I want you to look at chapter 8. We're not going to read it verse by verse because it's a lengthy chapter, but we are going to come down through it section by section. And, And you'll be able to get it that way. And we see some great things. And also we see a system here that uh, in this church that develops into our Christianity today that probably does more damage than all the booze and the drugs and, and all of the world put together. This system as we know it today is called legalism. And it's a system of putting you under a set of rules to try to make you spiritual. And many, many churches think if they set up the right kind of rules that you'll be the right kind of spiritual person. So they tell you how to dress. Uh, you'll find most many, many Baptist churches, the fact that a woman wears slacks uh, to church is absolutely horrendous. 
Uh, many of you wear shorts to church, and that's fine with me. I don't care. Uh, but in most churches, you would be asked to leave. Your knobby knees would cause you to leave or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> most churches are like that. And, uh, you know, they, they, they have us. They think that if you wear the right kind of clothes, that that's going to make you spiritual. Now, don't misunderstand me. Uh, I think that a, a Christian ought to dress modestly. But I don't think you can legislate morals to anybody. In fact, I know you can't. When I preach to you, I don't preach to you about the, the, the length of your skirt or the length of your shorts or, or the shirt that you wear or how you wear your hair. Uh, I, I don't deal with that. I learned a long time ago, again, by contrast, that if you want to change the way somebody is, go after their heart. Preach to their heart. When you preach to their heart, God will deal with them. I'll tell you something else I found out that is a good uh, process. And that is, the less I have to tell you what to do, the better off it is for everybody. I'd much rather have God tell you what to do. I think that's a mistake that young Christians make when winning people to Christ. I like to be in a position where I have somebody that I probably know is unsaved, and yet uh, I don't ever tell them they're unsaved because they think they are saved. So what do I do? I just let time go by, and they keep coming to church. They keep getting the Word of God. You know what? The Holy Spirit of God does the work, and I don't have to preach on salvation every week. I could preach on the man in the moon or UFOs or, or the heaven declare the glory of God or the Israel, state of Israel. And you know what? The Holy Spirit of God will exact out of that exactly what that person needs. And in time, that person will say, I think I need to be saved. You're always better off to let God tell you what's wrong with you. Uh, than, uh, but, you know, but some people won't listen to that. So God has guys like me and, 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 and thousand other preachers out there that, that basically preach the Word of God, and most Christians don't like it. But you know what? Hey, it's a tough world out there. That's just the way it is. But that's, that's the whole concept. That's the whole concept. You cannot legislate morals. You can put all kinds of, 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 of rules around human nature, and you know human natures will find a way around it. I mean, you, tell, you, you, tell, you put a rule up here. All right. Dresses have to be to the knees. So all the women show up with dresses to the knees. And then you'll find one that's got one so thin a mosquito can fly through without breaking his wings. <laughs> so now you got to put up here, dresses need to be knee length, dresses need to be thick. <laughs> then you'll have some gal wear one so tight that looks like a skin diver suit. So now you got to have, you see, in other words, human nature will always find a way around what it wants to do. So when you preach, you preach to the heart because the heart is what God does. Let me tell you something, ladies. When you dress this morning, any morning, to please the Lord, whatever you got on will be right. If you're trying to impress somebody else or whatever the case, that's going to be obvious too. Same way with the guys. You know, it's a thing where you don't, you cannot legislate morals. Story goes, a little kid one time, you know, little kid one time said, uh, his daddy said, well, what are you going to give up for lint? And the kid said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up chocolate. He said, that's a good idea. So about two weeks into lint, dad comes into his room and he's eating chocolate. Dad says, I thought you gave up for, I guess you gave up chocolate for lint. And he said, well, you didn't give it up for Lent. And dad said, yes, I did. I quit drinking alcohol. And, his, and, his, and the kid said, I saw you drinking a beer yesterday. 
And the dad said, well, I gave up hard alcohol. Kid said, okay, I gave up hard chocolate. I'm just eating soft chocolate, you see? There's always a way around it. In other words, when you get into that pulpit, you forget people and you just preach at hearts. Take the Word of God, let the Holy Spirit of God preach at hearts. And that's the issue you get into, you see? And you're going to see this church at Corinth, it's much like the churches today, they build a non-biblical system that we call today legalism, a church that is full of immature spiritual babies that have puffed themselves up with a little knowledge that they do have, and now they've devised a system of rules and regulations that are desired to keep people spiritual. And that just will not work. And you know, it's a church of spiritual Pharisees and Sadducees. And I've always, I've told you this before, that's always been interesting to me. Because nowhere in the Bible do you find the authorization of Sadducees or Pharisees. They come out of that time period between the captivity of 606 B.C. and when Christ shows up. And what they are, they're a group of religious leaders that, that are man-made, that God never gave any authority to anywhere, any place to run anything. And they now have suddenly appeared, and when Christ shows up, they're running the whole nation of Israel, yet they're not even found anywhere in the Bible. You know what that is? That's a picture of churches today. Churches build their churches on systems that are not even found in the Bible. And that's the church of Corinth. And that's the problem they get into. That's modern-day legalism. That's modern-day Baptist churches. Now, in this chapter, here's the issue. And we need to understand what the issue is. Now, here's the deal. Christians are going down on Monday morning to the marketplace. And they want to get their groceries. When they go down to the marketplace, they go into the place that sells the meat. And here, hanging on the meat market wall, is meat for 99 cents a pound. Right next to it is meat that is $1.99 a pound. Dollar difference. Now, the difference between the two is the fact that the 99 cent a pound meat that was used in yesterday's pagan sacrifices in the pagan in the altars to temples to Zeus and Lord knows who all. And because it's a day old and they kind of didn't eat it, didn't cook it, didn't need it, but they gave it back to the market, he's selling that a dollar cheaper. The dollar ninety-nine has just been freshly cut that morning. Some of God's people are recognizing the deal. They're buying the 99-cent meat because it's cheaper. They're taking it home, and they're happy with the fact that they made a great deal. They're ahead. And they got a great deal now going because they saved a dollar uh, off a pound of meat, bought the 99-cent meat, and, uh, and, and they're happy about it. Word spreads. Oh, in the church of Corinth, some of God's people are not happy about that. Because the issue now has become if some of God's people are really upset because of the fact that this meat was offered to idols just the day before. And they think there's some kind of blasphemy, some kind of sacrilege here. That God's people should not be buying meat and consuming it that was just offered yesterday for idols. That you're going to get a demon. That you're going to get some kind of curse on you that something terrible is going to happen, that this is against God because that meat just yesterday was being used in sacrifices to all these pagan gods. And what? Now you're a child of God are going to buy that same meat and feed it to your family? See, that's the issue. 
When I, when I grew up, there was a law in the books. Many of you older folks remember this. How many remember the blue law? Oh, dating yourself. I really don't remember, but my mom and dad told me about it a lot. <laughs> the blue law. The blue law was a law that nothing could be open on Sunday. Restaurants could, were allowed to be open. Today, we want to go out shopping after church. You got to pick up some this or that. You can go just about anywhere you want to go. I don't know of anything that's closed today on Sunday. And you can go wherever you want to go. You can go out to ball out here, you know, out here at the Independence Center. They'll all be open. People all over the place. When I grew up, that was a terrible thing. It was looked down on. Pastors preached on it. Oh, I remember hearing them just as a little kid. I remember hearing and preaching on how evil it was, you know, to, to, to go out and do anything on Sunday because Sunday was the day of rest. And that uh, they gave the idea that, you know, that you shouldn't do anything on Sunday. It always bothered me that right after church, the preacher always went out to a restaurant to eat, therefore causing somebody else to have to work to feed them. But it, that didn't seem to bother them. You see, I started to figure this thing out when I was three. <laughs> Somebody says, how did you get what you know in such, a, in such a short lifetime? I put in a lot of overtime. I started when I was three. I looked at these things. As I got older, I, I thought to myself, now, wait a minute. Once I got into the Bible, I, I saw this thing that, uh, you know, that the, first of all, there's nowhere in the Bible, the, the day of rest was the Sabbath day. And the blue law was based on the Sabbath. So what Baptist preachers did, they took the Sabbath concept and brought it into Christianity. Now, I don't know how to break this news to you, but the Sabbath was Saturday. The New Testament church starts on the first day of the week. But you know what Baptist churches did? Baptist churches, because they were not operating by the Bible, they lifted up the Sabbath, which was a day of rest where you didn't do any work, and tried to put it into the first day of the week, which is Sunday, to kind of keep everybody under control, so to speak. Now, if you want to play that thing out to the line, if you read the Old Testament, we're going to make the first day of the week the Sabbath. I got some bad news for you, Pastor. In most cases, the people in your church could not drive to your church without breaking that concept of the day of rest. But it didn't seem to bother anybody. And it's because it was a man-made system. Nobody even knows where the blue law started. I know where it started. I know how it got brought in and who brought it in and why it was unbiblical because the people that brought it in were unbiblical. It goes all the way back to the Puritan background and they're about as screwed up as you can get. And it, it went on and on. I remember when, when uh, you know, we have a, a tremendous athletic thing here and our league probably has brought in more people. Let me ask you a question. How many people today uh, first started coming to this church through our athletic ministry at some point? Let me see your hand. Look around you. There's a whole bunch of people started coming through it. And a lot of people not here today. And it's one of the most powerful things that we've ever done. I learned that from back home in Canton by the model that they had an athletic league. But I realized that, again, back then, we were under some weird concepts. We were a lot like the Church of Corinth in, in many, many ways. We weren't legalistic like the rest of them, but we had our own legalistic ways. And one of the things that we did is we had a basketball league and a, and a, and a softball league. And I, I basically mirrored my, my, my stuff off of what we did back then. 
And we had one rule back then that, that I got rid of when I first came to Kansas City. And that was they had a length of hair rule. I ain't kidding you. I look back on it and I think, what in the world was wrong with us back then? There were kids that came to play ball. If their hair touched the top of their ear, they were not allowed to play basketball. If the hair got on their collar. Now, you got to remember, that was back in the semi-hippie days. How many know who hippie is? See, you're in trouble. Some of you can't go through life without knowing what a hippie is. And, and, and everybody, you know, they thought short hair was godliness. And hair was a big deal back there. And they would misuse the verse out of Corinthians that says that, that the long, long hair is given to a woman, not a man. I've heard preachers, my own father in the Lord, Mel Sabaka. And no, he was a tough, rough guy. And he would say, he'd get, I've heard him say it a thousand times. He'd get up and he'd preach and he'd say, short, he said, long hair was given to a woman to please her husband. And then he'd look at all the men with long hair and he'd say, whose husband are you trying to please? See? <laughs> that was him. And one day I figured it out. I watched this preacher preach. And when he was working up a sweat, and he was done, his hair was all over the place. And he kept wiping his hair out of his eyes. But he had short hair. Then I come to the great conclusion. It wasn't long hair that was offensive to God. It was the placement of that long hair. You take the hair this way and comb it over here or over here, God goes. You take that same hair and sweep it back, God goes. It was stupid. Absolutely stupid. I grew up in an era where you didn't go to, if you were a Christian, you didn't go to movies. In fact, if you were a worker in most Baptist church, and a lot of you know this, you signed a thing that if you were going to be a deacon, you're going to be a worker, that you would not go to movies. And yet, we would show movies in church on Sunday night. But I figured this out. When you use the word, get up in the pulpit, and I made the mistake one time, and boy, I got cleaned out about it. I got up and made the announcement, and we were having a movie from Bob Jones University, which was a great movie. Sheffy, I think it was. About a boy and his dog. No, I was in, that was Lassie. But anyway, I got up and I said, we're having a movie tonight. Oh, I could feel the cringe behind my back when I sat down. The pastor leaned over and he says, we're having a film tonight, not a movie. <laughs> then I got it. If you get up and you say you're having a movie, God goes, hmm. If you get up and you say we're having a film, God goes, hmm. <laughs> It's stupid. Absolutely stupid. No, no, it's ridiculously stupid. But this is the games that churches have played and, you know, and continue to play. Back in the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s, there was a man who was one of the biggest Pharisees that the world has ever seen. Christian Pharisee, saved man, but he was a Pharisee. His name was Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard would have seminars around. Bill Gothard was an unmarried man. He, he, he promoted the concept of being celibate like Paul does. Un, un, an unmarried man. Never married all his life. 
Yet he thought because he was an unmarried man, they had great insight into marriages. You ain't got great insight into marriages till your wife hits you in the head with a frying pan or a rolling pin. <laughs> you ain't got great insight into marriage or she slams the door in your face, throws food in your face, and throws you down the cellar steps and sick the dog on you. Now you got insight. Excuse me for my moment of personal testimony there. <laughs> There's a book that just came out that somebody wrote about Bill Gothard called Battered Sheep. It's a great book. And it, it, it lists the heresies of, of Bill. I don't need the book to know the heresies. I grew up in it. Bill Gothard took the position that it was absolutely no remarriage. It didn't matter what happened. I mean, if your husband died that was, or spouse died, that was the only case. But absolutely no remarriage. No matter what happened, your husband could have beat you, shot you, murdered you, or tried to murder you, and you still had to stay married until he died. If you married somebody else, you were living in a life of adultery the rest of your life, and God was not pleased. That's Bill Gothard. He was really big on a lot of things. He, and the thing that bothered me about it back then and he was tremendously popular. He'd come to Kansas City, there'd be five, 6,000 people. They had to rent an auditorium or a big church. Five, 6,000 people would go hear him. He and he was something else. And they all come out with their little syllabuses. And they all came out preaching their little, you know, hypocrisy. And it was incredible, absolutely incredible. And he'd talk about the spirit of fornication, the spirit of adultery. Everything had a spirit to it. And it's incredible stuff. Later on, when it was revealed that immorality was going on with, with his own people, his own staff, and he had a large staff of people. And then it came out that he himself had been involved in, in his immorality. He got up before all of his people, all of the churches, and all the people that he taught, and he confessed moral failure. You see, for everybody else for the last 50 years, it was sin. But for a pious Pharisee, it's moral failure. That sounds good. Fifty years ago, when you go down to the mission, they were bums. Now they're transients. That sounds, I almost want to be one that sounds so good. See, back when, it used to be, a, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a janitor. Nothing wrong with that. Now you're a sanitary engineer. His hypocrisy, it was sin for everybody else, but when he fell into what he preached on, for him it was a moral failure. See, it kind of sounds better, doesn't it? Moral failure, oh, well, that ain't bad sin. <laughs> like movies and film. They learned how to play the game. Everybody else had sin, he had a moral failure. It was him that came up with the great theory on the Cabbage Patch Dolls. How remember Cabbage Patch Dolls? Oh, yeah, you probably still have some. <laughs> Bill taught that with a Cabbage Patch doll, you got a birth certificate, and each Cabbage Patch had a name. Bill taught, Bill, that's too sophisticated. Billy taught that Cabbage Patch dolls came with a demon. And if you gave your kid a Cabbage Patch doll, you were ensuring they were going to go to hell because they were going to get a demon. And he even went so far to say that all the names were demon names. No, no, you're laughing. It's absolutely true. I mean, you can laugh at it. It's funny. I'll laugh in a minute. I'm preaching right now. But that's what he did. And he would get up and he'd berate Christians and put them under this great bondage that if you bought your kid a cabbage patch doll, your kid's going to hell because your cabbage patch doll has got a name with a demon. And I remember looking at that and I thought to myself, 
what day is he going to be in town? Well, he's going to be here Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Wow, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You know those are names of demon gods? You know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday are the name of Roman gods? You notice in the Bible they never called it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's always the first day, the second day, the third day based off the first day. You know why they never call Sunday Sunday in the Bible? Because Sunday is a pagan day with a sun god. That was the big day of the week at 12 noon when they give all the sacrifice. So the Bible never makes that mistake. It calls it the first day of the week. We call it Sunday. You know, April, January, February, March, April, May. Pagan gods. You know how that old thing goes. Uh, how's it go? Uh, 30 days, half September, and then no number, and, you know, 60 days has this, and Grandma rides a bicycle or something like that. <laughs> They're pagan gods. It didn't seem to bother him that he put his whole preaching schedule around demon gods. I'll be here October 31st. That is a Friday. But cabbage patch dolls had demons. Ridiculous. He also preached that if you're a Christian and you eat red meat, you become a sexual deviant. That might make some of you happy. I don't know. But it, it, bottom line is, that's what he said. And when he'd come to Kansas City, there'd be 6,000 people go hear him. Half of them would go out for a rare steak when he was done. <laughs> My point is, Christians are famous for building up systems that have nothing to do with the Bible. That is the church of Corinth. That's their problem. We have the same issue here, or should I say the insane same issue here in chapter 8. You eat this meat, you're going to get a demon, and you'll give it over to Satan. Now, Paul lays this chapter out very neatly, and I think it's probably one of the best outlines in all of the Bible. So you'll want to get it down while we're here, especially you people at the back table. That's what you're there for. And uh, this is a great outline for you, and it's easy to get in your Bible, so you, you want to get it. And I'll tell you something else. There's a lot of good, solid, everyday principles in this great contrast. Now, the first three verses here really form an intro chapter, into the chapter. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you, Father, for the time we've set aside now. Pray that you'll use it. Give it uh, you the honor and glory out of it, and we'll thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. Now that's a great concept and a great principle there. What he's saying here is the fact that there's a great contrast between knowledge and charity. You're going to find in this chapter, you don't find anything about wisdom, nothing about understanding. You're going to find a great contrast here between knowledge and charity. You see, knowledge is the basic facts of things, and that's what the church Corinth had, but they had no wisdom. You see, knowledge is facts, but wisdom is the ability to use the knowledge that you have, and understanding is the final process, which you look back and put it all in, in context with the Bible. This church has knowledge, but they do not have wisdom. They don't have any understanding, like most of God's people today. Charity in the Bible is, is, will be defined for you, and we'll see it when we get on down here, but charity in the Bible is defined as the biblical concept of love. It's changed in all the new Bibles. They take the word charity out and put the word love in. That's the wrong thing to do. 
there's different forms of love. And charity is the biblical form of love because charity is something that you love something or someone without any interior motive. You don't want anything back. When you give something to charity, there's no strings attached, or there shouldn't be. That's the biblical love in the Bible called charity. So we begin to see that contrast. What he's saying here is this. If you're really spiritual, you don't need to brag about it. You don't, you know, all that you do and, and, you know, what you know and how spiritual you are. Ever see Christians like that? Honest to goodness, there are some of God's people that they cannot listen to what God is doing in anybody's life without stepping in and telling you how they were part of it. You know, it's just like, time out, spotlights, come on me. Yes, look what I did. Look what God did with me. Oh, yes, they got saved. They got this, but they couldn't have done it without me. Oh, keep that spotlight on me for another 15 minutes. That's where the term 15 minutes of phrase comes from, your friends. And, of course, that's, that's not what he's saying. He said, if you're really spiritual, you don't brag about it. The true matter of mark of a mature Christian, we don't have it in the church of Corinth, have very few of them today. But the bottom line, the true mark of a, a mature Christian, male or female, is that the more you know, if you're really spiritual, the more you know how stupid you are and you realize how, with the more you know, how little you really know. That's what he's saying in verse 2. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. In other words, the true mark of spirituality is the more you know, the more you, it forces you to realize how much you don't know. And you give God the glory for it because you, you have no problem telling people how stupid you are. You don't bask in the light of what you do know. And that's why he said, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Charity is understanding and loving the Word of God from the aspect that the more you read it, the more you study it, and the more that you give it, God gives it to you, the more, the more you realize how you don't know. Hey, I've been in the Bible over 40 years. And I'll tell you what right now, the thing that I'm impressed about the Bible is not all the things that I know. The things that impress me about the Bible is the things that I don't know. And I'm on a crash course with the judgment seat of Christ and in a real hurry to find out what I need to know because that judgment seat of Christ not going to hold me accountable what I knew or what I didn't know, but what I could have found out but were too lazy to do. Then verse 3. This is all the intro to this chapter. Oh, this is a great concept. This is one of the greatest single verses in the Bible as far as I am concerned. I've used this more in dealing with people. I've used this more. Nothing has saved my hide more than anything else in this planet when it comes to dealing with people than this verse right here. Because it simply says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. You know, I don't know why Christians can't get that. I don't know why God's people continue to hang out with people who don't love God. And in your mind, you think they have to love God. They must love God. They should love God. When the Bible clearly tells you, if any man love God, the sin is known of him. Let me tell you something. There are certain characteristics that go along with loving anything, including God. And if you don't have those characteristics, you don't love him. I mean, hey, again, I, I, I got a message. I, I preached this message one time way years ago in a guy's Sunday school class. He invited me to preach while he was gone somewhere, and I preached that. And people got mad at me. Like, I wrote that. <laughs> I didn't write that. That's what it says. You say, well, that's just your interpretation. You interpret it for me then. That's one of the verses in the Bible that it just says what it says, and it means what it says, and any way you want to slice it, it says, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. If you love him, it shows. You know what your wife's favorite expression is? This is another reason why 
consider what Paul said about staying single, guys. <laughs> Your wife's favorite expression is and will be, talk is cheap. You'll say, I love you. You say, actions speak louder than words. Shut up, woman. <laughs> Bible says women to be silent in the church. <clears throat> that don't work either. <clears throat> I'm telling you, what she's saying is true. Actions do speak louder than words. And this old thing, I love you, when you don't show you love someone? You think if your wife can figure that out? Hello? Anybody in there? You don't think God can figure it out? Well, God figure us out like a, so fast it won't know what hit us. Talk is cheap. John chapter 14, verse 23 says, if a man love me, he'll keep my words. So we don't read our Bible at all. We don't get into the Bible at all. We don't do anything with the Bible at all. And then we say to God, I love you. See? And we really think God believes it. And you tell your wife, you don't treat your wife right. You don't do what's right. You don't do anything biblical with her. And then you walk around saying, I love you. She looks at it just like God looks at it. She sees it as being phony. He says, if a man mummy, he'll keep my words. He says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, Christ is the friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Y'all got friends. Y'all got close friends. Y'all got people that are really close to you. I watch you people. I watch just you teenagers. You, you text a thousand times a day. I don't know how you do it. I see them, some of them over there just going so fast, man. I, I mean, when I text it, if you get a V, it usually means a U. I mean, that's just the way I am. And my fingers are so big or the buttons are so small, I, 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 don't, I just, and I'll hit two of them at the same time. And I don't go back and correct it. I don't have time. It, if you, I mean, uh, let me give you a little piece of advice here. If you got a long thing you want to tell me, call me. If you want an answer back, call me. I ain't texting no, no epistles. I'm sitting there, and I just, I'll be sitting there all of a sudden. You know how your phone goes off when you get a text? And then you get these multiple epistles <laughs> going on. I got one guy that it, it just he's driving me nuts. And he, he sends me 50 texts at a time. And I'm sitting there, and it's just, I'm saying, what in the world is going on my phone? My battery goes dead just telling me he got texts. <laughs> and then you open it up, and there's 28 texts. I got this guy's life story. Thank God for delete buttons, boy, I'll tell you. <laughs> that old commercial is true about that girl that broke up with her boyfriend, and she says, you know what the best part of breaking up is? That little delete button on your phone, and she puts his number out of her phone. I love that. That's true. I look at that. If you want to, you, you, you can send me something, and it's long, and I will read it, unless you're this guy. I will read it. <laughs> no, he's a... I'll tell you what, man. I mean, he's in the ozone layer someplace. <laughs> uh, but I will, I will read it. But it, I, I, you'll probably get back, okay. <laughs> if you got something you want me to answer, I get people send me Bible questions on the text. You're out of your mind. <laughs> Bob, can you explain to me that? No! <laughs> Man, I don't have that much memory in my phone. <laughs> you kidding me? You want me to do a three-hour dissertation in a, on a text? 
Man, you're way harder ahead of me in technology, I'll tell you that much. That ain't going to happen. So in that case, you'll get, I don't know. Say, you want me to send me a text? You got, I'll answer you back. Now, I have no idea how this fit into what I was saying before because I completely lost my mind. But it's a good thing. If you want, call me. Call me. Call me. Call me. Just a minute here. I'm going to find out where I'm at. Oh, your friend is sticking close to another brother. I watch you kids text your friends all the time. You're like lightning. I've seen kids, I've seen people driving their cars. I think there ought to be a special police unit that drives unmarked cars, sits high, truck, that can look down in. Just all you do is tool up and you see somebody over there texting and pull them over. Confiscate their phone. Body search them. Throw them in jail. I watch them. They're doing it all the time. I, I watch people in Bible study. I'm up there teaching my heart out, you know, and somebody's back there, I love you too. What's that all about? My point is this. You can't get along with your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, without talking to them one way or the other a thousand times a day. But you can get along without saying one word to God all day long, and then you still think God thinks you love him? We live in two different worlds, people. And this is part of my problem. <laughs> He's a friend that's closer than a brother. And you got ever have a friend you just didn't talk to? I mean, if you picked up a gal you're dating and you go out and have a nice night, going to go to dinner and go somewhere, you know, and it's a beautiful night and you're driving there and the time you pick her up, the time you bring her back, you never say a word to her. She asks you what's wrong. No dinner conversation. You go to the menu place. What would you like, sir? She tries to make conversation. Well, honey, how's your food? Good, I guess, huh? We do the same thing with God. That's a great, powerful verse. Oh, here it comes. Then if you love somebody, you like to give them things. Ooh. Do you ever miss your wife's birthday? You know, she gets up in the morning and she's expecting roses and cards and everything and there's nothing there. She's an optimist. Doesn't know you very well. <clears throat> she thinks always oh, going to surprise me with flowers sometime during the day after he's gone to work. How romantic. So every time she hears a car stop out front, she's looking, waiting for the florist. Nothing. She's still an optimist. So she thinks you're going to swoon her off her feet and take her out to dinner at 6 o'clock when you come home. You come in, dead bone dragging in, you know, flop down, turn on the sports thing. Nothing. She's still an optimist, though I must confess by this time she's waning a little bit. And, you know, you finally go to bed that night and she's thinking, well, this is it. She's going to surprise me. He's got... Something out there, you know, my friend probably drew up, drew up a new car and he's going to turn the porch light on and say, honey, whose car is that out there? And you're going to say, I don't know. Well, uh, whose car do you think that is? It's yours. <laughs> and you know how it works, don't you? 
turn the, we'd already turn the light off, you know, to roll or go to sleep, say night, honey, next thing you know, whack! <laughs> you startle up there and say, what's wrong with you? What's the matter? And she's crying by now, you know, and she's hysterical by now, and she's boohooing all over the place, and she just, you know, and you don't know, you still ain't got a clue. <laughs> I mean, you're like Dagon, the false god. You're dead, dumb, and de you can't get anything. And you, she finally tells you it's your birthday, and, and you feel terrible. And so you know what you do? We, we all do it. You just say, oh, honey, you know I love you. Does that work for her? No, seriously, does that work for her? I'm trying to see how many people have been guilty of that. Does that work for her? No, it doesn't work for God either. You love people. You're like, you know what you do? You find out what people like. You find out what they want to do. Then you give them what they want. It's just that simple. If any man love God, the same have known of him. And I'll tell you something else. If any man doesn't love God, same have known of him. And that's, that negative attitude comes out. How can you love God and not go to church when the Bible says Christ loved the church and died for? You think you'd love the things he'd love? I think. Maybe that's just me now. And you find what? All kinds of reasons? What did anybody ever could ever do? Anybody ever say? What, so you had a bad experience at one church? So what? what? What does that mean? So you just throw the Bible out because you found a bad experience? Go find you a good one. You know why people mostly most churches when they say, well, I don't like that church? Let me translate that for you. I'm a Greek and Hebrew expert. It ain't that I don't like that church. It's I don't like any church. Because I'm out of fellowship with God and I'm going to make a pretense that I don't like this church, but six months, a year, two years from now, I won't be going to any church. You know why? Because that's my real issue. If any man love God, the same is known to him. And if you don't love God, the same is known to him. This is all intro. You know why you spend time with people who don't love God? You know why you give up the things of God for the worldly things and you're comfortable with it? You figure it out yet? I'll tell you why, because you don't love him really either. That thing I gave you, what, two Thursday nights ago in Psalm 78, that thing will decimate you if you ever bother reading it. Verse 36, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. That's us. That's us. So these first three verses are great intros. And then he gets into the heart of the matter here in verse five, six, 4, 5, and 6. He says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered to, in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the, in the world, and that there is one, uh, none other God but one. For though there be, are called many gods, called, many call, that are God, called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us, Christians, there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, that's Ephesians 1, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things, and uh, we uh, by him. That's Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. You see, what he's saying here is, and here's another contrast, God, capital G-O-D, versus God's, or God's, small G-O-D. That's contrast. Now, God, capital G-O-D, will be the Lord Jesus Christ or God the Father. The small G-O-D will be false gods. There's the things that man make up. He says this meat offering is to gods, and it means absolutely nothing to a Christian. Christian ought to be smarter than that. A Christian has no illusion that there are any other gods. He has no, he's not under any illusion that this meat issue is absolutely stupid as far as uh, contact with the devil and getting demons. See, a Christian should see what is real 
and what's not real. He should have a good handle on the contrast. And he should view the real versus the unreal with, and view the unreal with total lack of respect and total no credibility whatsoever to it. You know, we live in a world that wants to be tolerant of religions. And I understand that to a certain degree. But you realize that that, that uh, and that's something everybody has to, obviously we're under grace, so you have to, you have to use that uh, on an individual different basis. But at the bottom line, in the Old Testament where there was no grace, God didn't cut at the old false nations any slack at all. I mean, you get back there in uh, first, uh, or first Kings chapter 18 with old Elijah and the four prophets of Baal. And they got a contest that's going to find out whose God is God. See, a contrast. They build a sacrifice and they simply say, okay, you say your God's God. I say my God's God. Let's have a test. Let's put the God to the test. Let's build an altar, put the wood on it, get this thing ready. Whichever God can call down fire, that's the one that we'll just, uh, we'll just uh, we'll know that he's God. And everybody agreed. So they say, you guys go first. So these 400 prophets of Baal, they build the altar, and they get all the wood on it, they get the sacrifice on it, and they're, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're dancing around, you know, and they're cutting themselves, and they're crying up till, up till 12 noon when the sun's the highest. That's when the sun God's supposed to shoot down fire. Nothing ever happens. Now, Elijah, he's a, he's a, he's a great model for you and for me. He's got great tolerance for religion. He's standing over here mocking them. He's saying after the first half hour, where's your God? After an hour. You think there'll be any fire today at all? Two hours. Think your God maybe is on, vac <laughs> on vacation? <laughs> and that just infuriates them. And now they're cutting themselves, dripping blood on it. He's over there saying, hey, you want to get some real blood on that? Why don't you try that one right there? He's making fun of them. He says, maybe your God's on a hunting trip. Then he takes his. He builds his altar, puts his wood on it, and then he brings in about 150,000 gallons of water and puts it on it. Then he stands back and he just, God comes down. He burnt, the Bible says, he burns up the sacrifice, he burns up the wood, he burns up the water, and he burns up the everything. And then he did the Christian godly thing. He killed the 400 prophets. Now that's the Old Testament. My point is, you ought to see, as Elijah saw, that the things of this old world and the things that the world tries to throw at you, you don't have to be afraid of those things. You don't have to be afraid of them at all. God's people are they're kind of like superstitious people. I had a guy one time and got a, he had a heart attack. He called me on the phone and he said, you ain't going to believe this. He said, I don't know what to do. And I, thought, I thought his wife died. I thought some kid got, his kid got hit with a car. He was upset because he went to, the, went to get new license plates and he came back 666. And he thinks now because he's got a license plate 666, he's demon-possessed. He thinks something's going to befall on him. And he says, I don't know what to do. Should I take him? I said, no, don't take him back. Put him on your car, man. What a great witnessing opportunity. Hey, you know you got 666. Yeah, I'm looking for the devil. I'm going to run over him. <laughs> Superstitious Christian. Oh, I got 666. Oh. One time I had a person, you know, in all the good intents in the world, a number of years ago, I knew I was going out of the country and going some places that were trying to thing. And, and this person, person was a, a dear old lady. She was probably in her 60s and her 70s. And I would talk to her about where I'm going and things that I'm doing. And she, and I, and she wasn't saved, I don't think. But she felt the compassion. And you know what she did? She got me a little gift. You know what it was? It was a St. Christopher's medal. 
You know what I did? I thanked her for it, hugged her and kissed her, and I said, that really means a lot to me. Now, do you think I'm wearing a St. Christopher medal today? Or ever did? You think I, if, 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 that I, that I would, if I did wear it, you think I'd get a demon from St. Christopher? You see, you, you're not superstitious about those things. You're just not. I had a couple one time give me an NIV for my birthday. They didn't know any better. You think when I opened up that box and I saw it was NIV, I put it down and got my crucifix out and cast the demons out of it? <laughs> I thanked them for it because I'm not afraid of things like that. You're just, you're just not. You're not. You're just not. You know, God's people come to the place where they, 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 they're afraid of things that they're not. Kathy gave me a, Kathy gave me a, Langsford gave me a, a couple of charts at a National Geographic, and I love stuff like that, because they do a great job. And on one of them was the land of Israel, and on the other side, it was a portrayal of how that, the, uh, the history of Jerusalem, and it showed a timeline coming down through it, which I thought was great. It showed the Dome of the Rock. Uh, where the uh, Muslims uh, have today, and that was the site of the temple, and it showed the outcropping there, and, and, and it gave basic, you know, National Geographic, they're not going to, they're just going to give you the facts. And as I read that, you know, they were talking about how the Christians claim this, and the Muslims claim this, and this is the place where Muhammad supposedly went to heaven on a winged horse after his trip from Mecca, you know, and this is, and, and then he talked about the Bible, this is where the temple was built with Solomon, and, you know, David here, and this is where, in Christian tradition, the Lord is coming back. And then you read all that stuff, and you know what, I look at that, and I read that just like Muhammad didn't win place or show. I don't give the story any credibility about Mohammed and the Dome of the Rock because I know when the Lord comes back, he's going to knock that golden dome off that thing and he's going to set that thing up the way he wants. I don't give him any credibility. You know why? Because there's no credibility to it. Those are false gods just like connected with 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and a real Christian who knows his Bible doesn't waste the time of day with it. Doesn't waste the time of day with it. Now look at verse 7 and 8. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge of verse 6, that there's one God and one Lord. And the rest of it doesn't matter. Howbeit, that's an old English phrase for how come? Why don't you grow? Why don't you know these things? Why are you staying a weak baby Christian all of your life? Because the bottom line is, folks, when you know and operate by the Bible and Bible principles, you don't get caught up in these things. Weak Christians who have a weak conscience, that's what he says, verse 7. They have a weak conscience. You know what that means? They don't have a good conscience toward God. You know what that means? They don't understand what to believe and what not to believe and where to lay their emotions based on an absolute Bible that tells you what to feel and what to think. Now, I find a lot of God's people that are scared of a lot of... You know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the devil and the demonic forces, they can only operate in your life as a Christian. Bible says, give no place to the devil in Ephesians chapter 4. You know what that place is? The devil has any place in your life to do anything or any unclean spirit has anything to do in your life to give you any problems. You know where the door that he enters in? It's the door of fear. It's the door of ignorance. It just starts with you believing that there's something to it when there's not, and then you're afraid of it when the Bible clearly tells you that perfect love, what, casteth out fear? 
The Bible says, he that is in you is greater than is in the world. The Bible says that you ought to perfect your love for God, and by the perfecting that love, it casted out fear. You see, and listen to what I'm saying. You should fear the devil, but you should not be afraid of the devil. When I say you should fear the devil, I mean you don't mess with him. You don't challenge him out like Billy Sunday did to come out and fight. You don't shake your fist and call the devil a coward. You don't do stupid things like that. Well, Michael the archangel, who is more powerful than all of us in the book of Jude, when he was faced with the devil, the Bible said would not even bring a railing accusation against him. He just rebuked him with the Lord and said, let him alone. And that's good advice. Bible says, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, that we're not to touch the Lord's anointed. And the devil, if you know your Bible, is the Lord's anointed. He's the anointed cherub. He's one of the Lord's anointed. He has a job to do just like anybody else in the Bible, if you know your Bible. You see, you fear the devil of who he is, but you're not afraid of the devil or his crowd because as a child of God, they don't have any power over you. They don't have any control over you. My God, folks, you've got the Holy Spirit of God living inside you. You've got God Almighty living inside you. What in the world are you afraid of? I'll tell you what you're afraid of. You're afraid of the unknown. And the unknown is in your life is because you're ignorant of the Bible. You've never got into it. You've never grown through it. So there's spooky things out there. I haven't been winning for years. They're, I'm too old and they're too much money. But haunted houses are always great. We used to take, when I was, years ago, when I was a youth kid, pastor, we took kids to the edge of hell downtown. And someone old, it was great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I don't know why I pay $9 to be scared, but I, I enjoy it. I, after about four or five years, I got a little smarter, and it became fun. But it also became, what's the point? Maybe that's why I don't go anymore. Because you go in there, and you there's just places where it's pitch dark. And they hang things from the ceiling. And there's people that reach out and touch you. And you hear groans, growls, all these things out there. And it's dark. It's scary. And I'll never forget, for the first four or five years I went, it was fun. It was scary. And, you know, the girls, they're really scared. They won't go. And so you're going to be the man. You're going to lead them, but you don't want to go either, you know. (laughs) And you walk up there, and somebody comes around a corner with a big mask on like that, you know, and looks down at you, and you just, you know, you try to be brave. But you know what? That's what you paid the money for. After about four or five years, I I happened upon a a night vision scope. (laughs) And we got in there in a dark room. You could turn it on. You could see where everything was. They have big signs, no flashlights. You know why? Because when you turn the lights on in those places, they're not scary anymore. You see the walls, you see the painted stuff on there, you see the guy with makeup on and he's fake because when the light's on, it always shows you what the fake is. I said, when the light's on, it always shows you what the fake is. I said, when the light's on, it always shows you what the fake is. Thank you very much. And you know why? Because when the lights come on, all the darkness is gone and there's nothing to be afraid of anymore. My point being, there's a lot of things out there in the dark that the devil wants to try to scare you with, cabbage patch dolls. Meat given to idols. 
Now, when you turn the light on, the Word of God, at the entrance of thy word, giveth light, she did nothing to be afraid of anymore. Now, it doesn't mean you don't fear the devil of who he is, and you don't be stupid and, and take him on. You reverence him of the power that he is, but you also know that greater is he that's in you that's in the world, and he has no power over you. I've had people call me, Bob, I think I've got a demon in my home. What should I do? Run him over with a car when you back in the garage. You see, the very fact that you get afraid, that gives them all the license they want. They play on your fear. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. You walk into the house and you're saying, there was power, power, power in the blood of the Lamb. He's gone. Somebody said one time, well, I was sitting at the table and I was eating and the salt shaker moved. What, what should I do? Tell him to get his own food. <laughs> yeah. You say, this food was given to me by God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that's going to put you in the bottomless pit, Revelation chapter 20. So what in the world are you doing here? Excuse me, I'm out of here. Sorry. You know, that's what Jesus did when the devil came to him in Matthew, early on there, Matthew 4, attacked him three times. He just said three times, it is written, the devil said, three times, it is written, the devil said, I'm done here. Verse 8 says it doesn't matter to God one way or the other whether you eat it or you don't eat it as long as a Christian, you know the truth about it. And I'm not afraid to eat it. You should know the truth about everything and then make your decision based on that. We make too many decisions based on fear of what we don't know. I told you a lot of good principles here. Then chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 13. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be embolded embolded to eat those things which are offered to idols? And and, And through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when ye sin, so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make thy brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, 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 this is where we switch over, the great balance. In everything in life, there's a balance. We just talked about all the things that you're to be bold in. Now he switches and he talks about the fact that, that, uh, uh, that the... Uh, these are the things that you have to balance it out with. And to everything, there's a balance. And I told you before that you keep finding the word knowledge here. You do not find the word wisdom or the word understanding. And we find here that somebody is weak in their conscience. That means that they haven't gotten got the light. Now, I got to say this, and this is where you got to balance it out. Obviously, the Bible says we need to be careful of weak Christians young Christians, and not do things in front of them that are going to hurt them or make them stumble. But at the same time, you can't live your life being in fear of weak Christians or you won't get anything done. There has to be a line drawn. What he's saying is, and you find this true in the ministry when you've been in it for a while, you find out there's nothing wrong with being a weak Christian, weak in your conscience. The problem is when you continue to stay there that you don't grow out of it. You can, be, you can be respectful and help somebody and be careful with somebody, but let me tell you something. If they continue to stay that way and not get the Word of God and the principles in their life, then that's on them. 
And that's the balance you got to have. He says in verse 11, don't let the fact that it's okay be flaunted in the weaker brother's face. And this is a problem many, many times because we know it's okay. We just beat up the other person with it. And that's not good. I think that when there's questionable areas, you need to sit down with them, open up the Bible and show them. If they don't get it, that's okay. If they stay in the book, they'll continue to grow and in time they will get it. And if they don't stay in the book and grow, what's the matter? It's just that simple. Verse 12 says, because the, and this is a great principle, using our liberty to make a young Christian fall, we, even though the thing is right, he says, but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Now that's a tremendous principle. That's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that says when God's people go out of their way to slander somebody, to hurt somebody, say something about somebody, they think they're doing it to them and they're a great Christian. Bible bottom line is the Bible says they, they're sinning against Christ. You know why? Because that person is part of Christ's body. That's why. That's a great concept. Unknown, but a great concept. Verse 13 says, so we use discretion in not just what you do, but how you do it. And I think that's wisdom. Knowledge is the facts, but wisdom and understanding is the ability to use the knowledge that you have in a biblical format. There's a lot of things that you can do and say that you don't. And this is the end result, knowledge. But as I said, there's no wisdom, there's no understanding. So when it's just knowledge by itself, and you never attain to wisdom and understanding, you know what knowledge does? We already looked at it. Knowledge puffs you up. It puffs you up because you never learn how to use the knowledge that you have. You never attain the wisdom to see how to use the knowledge or the understanding to see the biblical principles that tells you what to do with it. And that's the bottom line in the problem. And it's always a balance. It's always a balance. All right, now let's come into chapter 9 here. Now, in this chapter, he continues the aspect of our liberty that he's already talking about in chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. He's saying here, basically, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Or not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the zeal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. My answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Now, what he's saying here basically is this, and I'll read these, and then I'll give you an, an understandable breakdown of it so you can better understand it and basically get it in your Bible. All these things that I'm telling you are right in my Bible, right by these verses. Paul says he has a right to do and go wherever he wants, but he won't do it because his goal is to reach people. And some of those things he could do will hurt and not help people come to Christ. And here again, this is the ability to discern and understand. And what he's saying here in verses 1 through 5 is based on <coughs> the two or three other great principles in the Bible uh, that we've all looked at by now. Remember, we come through Romans. We talked about Romans chapter 14 and 15 that were to help the weaker Christians. Romans 15, 1, neither the strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. Remember, I gave you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. That's wise. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Nothing should control you. 
anything in your life in excess is bad, even the Bible. Now, I know a lot of young Christians have a tough time with that. That's because you, you're still young. You don't understand. The Bible says the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. And it comes a point where you know, you know, I grew up, when I grew up, I, my Mel Sabaka, my father in the Lord, he, he was my inspiration for everything in the Bible. And I, I tried to mirror many things. And by trial and error, I learned a lot of things that, that worked for him, didn't work for me. Mel used to read his Bible through every 33 days. Now, that's 55 chapters a day, by the way. So there was a time in my life when I felt that was the key to learn the Bible. So I started reading the Bible through 55 chapters a day. And I started to bring it once every 33 days. I did that for two, maybe three years. At the end of three years, I was the worst spiritual mess you could ever be in your life. The reason for that, and I learned a great truth out of it. The reason for that is, that, see, I thought that it was how many times I went through the Bible that really made you spiritual. And by the end of my three years or two and a half years, whenever it was, I was judging my spirituality, not on what God was doing with me, but that I get my 55 chapters in today. And if I got my 55 chapters, I felt like I was in fellowship with God. When I didn't fall short of it, I felt like I wasn't right with God. And in reality, it had nothing to do with that. I learned a great lesson out of that. And the great lesson I learned was, it's not how many times you go through the Bible, but it's how many times the Bible goes through you. That's the key. Because too much Bible, like anything else, gets you off track. Got to have a balance. Everything in life's a balance. People say, oh, I, a Bible, you got, oh, I can't believe Bob said you can get too much Bible. That's because you're a Pharisee. That's because you're puffed up. You don't see the balance in anything. And that's, that's the whole concept. You've got to have a balance in everything you do. Now, he says in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, I got the power to do all things. See, I'm under grace. But power always has to have an accountability factor always does. You have the power to do whatever you want to do, but there has to be an accountability factor. This is the problem with churches today. Pastors want the people to submit to them, but they don't want to submit themselves back to the people. They want the people to be accountable to them. They don't want to be accountable to the people. That will not work. That will not work. And people, you know, they, they, they have to understand that accountability is absolutely crucial. You know, we talk about leadership in a church, and, you know, we talk about pastors or deacons or elders, and everybody thinks that's some special deal. But the bottom line is this, you're not a pastor or deacon or an elder in a church for any other reason other than to serve the people you're in, and you are accountable to them. This thing that is some kind of power that you being named at makes you something special, all it does is make you lower than everybody else because you're to be a servant. And when you don't fulfill that, then you've got your own puffed-up mindset of it. And I will tell you this. You notice there's a great principle that it keeps popping up in everything that Paul talks about. I think it's a great principle. And uh, notice, uh, he says, you are my, in verse 1, he says, ye are my work in the Lord. He says, the seal of my apostleship is in you, in verse 2. Over in 2 Corinthians, there were people that were, Upset with Paul. And, you know, and when you study the New Testament, we look back on it and we think that Paul, you know, everybody loved Paul. How could they not? We read books, Paul's writings, and they're a source of everything that we believe in our church. But I got to tell you, and you should know this if you know anything about your Bible, in Paul's day, he was not accepted by everybody, and a lot of people didn't like him. 
And a lot of people had a lot of problem with the way he did things. And Paul always keeps bringing up, and I think this is one of the greatest, tremendous principles you're ever going to find anywhere again in the Bible about how to find out contrast to what's real and what's wrong, what's phony and what's real. Because they were pharisaical Christians, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. They're actually, Paul's trying to help this church, and there's people in the church now that were once Paul's friends that are now out of fellowship with God. They're making Paul the bad guy, and they're saying, well, who do you think you are coming in and telling us what we should do? And then they have the audacity to ask him, could you provide for us a letter that proves you're who you say you are? What? You know what he says to them? He says, you want a letter? Go look in the mirror. He says, you be my letter of epistle. In other words, you guys wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for me. But there was people all through his life that gave him problems. And I'm telling you, that brings up a great concept for you and for me. Because you can always tell what people really are. And you want to write this down. You can always tell what people really are. I said, you can always tell by what people really are, by what they build. I'll say it again. You can always tell who people really are by what they build. You see, Paul was constantly attacked by people who never built anything for God. So what he's doing here, by contrast, is giving us the great principle of what, how he handled it by saying to the people who attacked him all the time, but in their lives they never did anything, he contrasts what he has built, thousands of people, probably hundreds of thousands of people, thousands of churches, versus what they've built, absolutely nothing. You see, the Bible makes things real clear, real easily. Principles like this are invaluable in our own day and age that we live in. If you really want to know where somebody's at with God who wants to pretend they're spiritual, wants to live like the world and live like hell and yet talk about God and, and how much they love God, just watch what they build. Because whatever they build is in direct relationship to where God is at. And Paul uses that as a contrast. Because here's Paul building thousands of people, building thousands of churches. Here's somebody who's building nothing, criticizing the man who's building everything. And so Paul has no problem. We look at that and we'd say, that's arrogance. We'd say, well, Paul, that's pretty prideful. He didn't see it that way. He uses it to show them. He uses it to show them when he comes down through there. He says, you want to talk about my work in the Lord? Hey, you're my work in the Lord. You want, you want to see the, the seal of my apostleship? Just go look in a mirror. You'll always find and what people are by what they build. It's true in any church. In any church, you'll have people who labor and work and build people. You'll have people who complain about what's going on. You'll have people that will focus on and do and get involved and try to change people's lives. You'll have people who stand on the sidelines and just complain about everything that somebody else does. What do they build? Absolutely nothing. What do they do? Try to tear down what you're building. End of the day, it doesn't make any difference. Doesn't make any difference. They'll all get a bottle of beer, a can of snuff, and be off. It's just the way it works. Then verses 19 through 22. 
Now, here's another great principle. For though I be free from all men, yea, I have made myself a servant. There it is. Unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I, made all thi- I, 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 I am made all things to all men. Notice, that verse is always misquoted. It says, I became all things. That's not what it says. It says, I am made all things. In other words, you can't get there by yourself. God has to make you that way. And he makes you that way through the things that you do in your life. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. Now, real spiritual people take not the attitude of a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but rather the attitude of a servant. And verse 20 through 23, simply put, Paul says he became all things. He became sensitive to where they're at. He identified with their suffering. He was sensitive to their culture. He identified with wherever they were at in life without becoming a partaker of their sins. I think one of the greatest examples of this is in Acts chapter 16 and then again in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 16, keep in mind now, this is on one Paul's missionary journey long after the law was gone. Paul's going down to the Jews and he's going to try to reach them for Christ. He's taking Timothy with them who's a Gentile. So what does Paul do? He has Timothy circumcised. There's no law at this point. Timothy does not have to be circumcised in any way, shape, or form. You know why Paul did it? Paul knew that if he wasn't, it was going to cause a problem, and Paul knew that it didn't mean anything to him. So he had Timothy circumcised so he could be accepted of the people that he wanted to meet. Over in Acts chapter 20, you know what he does after he goes down to Jerusalem? He goes down there and he heads out with the Jews, and he, he, he goes right in with them. And he shaves his head, he puts the clothes on, he, go, he goes through the purification. Pro- hey, all this is done away now with Christ. None of this has anything to do with New Testament Christianity, but Paul knew that's where the Jew were, and he was. So he goes down there, he does everything they do, right up to the point where it's time to give the evening sacrifice, and Paul does not do the evening sacrifice. You know why? Because he knew that was the line. He knew the purification didn't mean anything. The clothes didn't mean anything. Having Timothy circumcised didn't mean anything. But sacrificing a lamb, once the lamb was already sacrificed on the cross, that would have crossed the line. You see, he had the ability to use what he knew. And by doing that, he didn't come as this Pharisee. He didn't come as this religious leader. He didn't come lording over people. He came as a servant. And our job is to understand how to accept people where they're at because through your attitude of a servant, you become the tool that God uses to bring them to Christ. And so he says, I become all things to all men. He says, I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And then he says, verse 23, and this I do for the gospel's sake. Only reason we exist. When we get in chapter 15, we're going to, Define the gospel. But it's the only reason we exist, for the gospel's sake. That's our only motive. 
Our only motive is to do what we do the way we do it and have the balance in our life and follow the things that we're supposed to because of what Christ did for us on the cross, the balance. Then the last thing I want you to see here in verse 24 through 27. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race shall run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you might obtain. And of course, the prize that he's talking about here is the judgment seat of Christ. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by, that by any means, uh, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now you want to look at this. Here's another great principle. Remember a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night Bible study, we talked about Ephesians 6, and somebody asked a question about the armor of God, and I told you how that Paul put that context for you and me into Christianity into a concept of a first-century Roman soldier. He identified with the soldier and what he saw of his day and then wrote about it in Christian terms. He's doing the same thing here. He's putting this context here of the Christian life and the Christian walk and the Christian race in a concept of a first-century Roman Olympics exactly what was going on. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Olympics. The Olympics started with the Greeks long before the Roman Empire ever came on. When the Roman Empire defeated Greece, then they kept on a lot of the, lot of the, uh, uh, lot of the uh, Olympic Games, and they brought them along, and they brought them right through. I think they were in up to about 200 A.D. when Theodosian then canceled them all. We resurrected them a number of years ago, and we still do them today. Uh, nothing like on the grandeur of back then. But it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And he talks about the five in verse 25, that we are striving for the mastery. And we are running to win a prize. And that prize, of course, is a crown, an incorruptible crown. And there shows you again the balance, an example of an athlete in training using at these long-distance marathon runners back in the Olympics. They would train and train and train, but they did it for a corruptible crown. We run the race, the race of the Christian life, for an incorruptible. And, of course, you know that's one of the five crowns that you get at the judgment seat of Christ. He says there, he says, uh, verse 26, run not as in certainty. Some of God's people don't even know what they're running for today. Some of them don't even know they're in a race. It's like the old cliche we use today, you know what, they're not even in the same ballpark. You know, and that's what he's saying. Some of God's people, they run as uncertainty. You don't even know why you're running. You don't even know there's a race. Verse 26 says, not as one that beateth the air. And God's people, some bless their heart all through their life. They just swing and hit nothing. They're like a boxer that can't hit their opponent and all they ever hit is thin air. You know, in the old days, and this whole prize, this whole concept is built around the judgment seat of Christ. In the old days, the old guys used to call the judgment seat of Christ the Bema seat. Nobody ever uses that anymore, and that's because we've come a long way and don't think in those terms anymore. But the original concept of that Bema seat goes back to the Olympics. And uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but in Corinth itself, where this church is at that we're studying... It was one of the great Olympic games. When the Greeks had it, it was the center of it all. They called it the Isthmus game because Corinth is in the landmass is an Isthmus. And it was called the Isthmus Games. 
And it was a time when the Bema seat, back then in those days, once Rome took it over, when the runners came in and everything was done, there was a platform that they came up. And when they come out of that platform, that's where they got their crown. And there was a man there who was in a seat that judged whether they came in first, second, or third. And that's where the concept of the Bema seat first got its start because in relationship to the judgment seat of Christ because there's going to come a day when we stand before God and we also receive a crown. They did it as an incorruptible. Uh, we get it as an incorruptible. And that's the whole concept. And so this idea of the ancient Olympics, Paul using that as an analogy of the race that you and I are in, he says in verse 27, keeping your body under subjection. There again, that is the liberty that you have, but the good sense to know how to use it. You get knowledge from the Bible, but you don't leave it stay at knowledge. You develop that knowledge into wisdom and understanding. You develop a servant's attitude. He said when you don't do that, when you preach one thing like many pastors do, but in your practice you do something else, you become a castaway. Nobody wants to listen to what you got to say. And then lastly, I'm going to give you this. And I heard this as a message many, many, many years ago. And boy, it's true. I got them in my Bible, and I just simply got it in the same passage right here, and it simply says, the rules of the race. You know, there's rules to every race. There's rules in the Olympics. There's rules if you run track, and many of you guys have ran track, you know there's rules. And this race for Jesus Christ, for the prize, the judgment seat of Christ, the incorruptible crown, there are some rules. And the rules are strikingly parallel. The first rule of this race for Jesus Christ, as I can give you, is run as hard as you can. Give it everything you got. A runner doesn't hold back. A runner knows that he is, he's, got to, he's got to maybe pace himself, but he knows that he never gives up. He always runs as hard as he can. The second rule I would give you as a runner in a, in a race of Christianity, stay in your own lane. Stay in your own lane. Mind your own business. Don't get focused on what other people are struggling with or doing with if you're not going to help them. Don't let what somebody else's failures deter you in your race. Let me tell you something. If I let other pastors and other Christians that wanted to quit along the way and give up along the way, if I let them affect me, I've been out of this race the first year I was in it. You know what? I'm not running for them. And your failure in this race isn't going to stop me in running my race. So get over it. I'm running this race. And you go out to run with me. You may start to run this race with me, and you may lapse off someplace along the line. Have at it, baby. I'm running the race. Third one, don't look at the hurdles. I think that's probably what gets most God's people in this race. There's going to be hurdles in this race you've got to get over. You know, a hurdler doesn't look at the hurdles. He's looking straight ahead, and it's almost like an automatic thing. He lifts that body up, and he's over those hurdles, and he doesn't even look at them. And as a child of God running this race, don't look at the hurdles. Keep your eye on the Lord Jesus Christ and the finish line. Then the next thing, the fourth one, don't look at the crowd that's watching you. There were many a race lost because somebody's running hard, and then some sweet little chickie on the sideline calls out his name. And just for a split second, he looks over and smiles. And then he gets passed in the race. Don't care about the crowd watching you. I'll tell you another one, number five. This is a good one. No false starts. 
You get in those blocks, you go when the gun cracks, and you run as hard as you can. You run as, you, no false starts. You do it exactly the way you're supposed to do it. Then the sixth one, you run lawfully. You don't cut across the infield to win. You don't put little jet packs in your shoes to make you run faster. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, If a man also strive for the masteries, yet he is not crowned. Why? Except he strive lawfully. You've got to run this race by the book, folks. A lot of people don't like that. A lot of people start out liking that, don't wind up liking it. I don't know what to tell you. The race is the race. And the race is run based on the fact that you run it lawfully. This thing here is a picture of a church and a bunch of Christians that had knowledge, puffed themselves up, and never got to any place else. Now it's caused them problems. And by contrast, Paul shows you some great principles. And it's an incredible book. Next week, we'll go in chapter uh, 10 and 11. And then we'll get into the great chapter on 12, 13, and 14, which deals with spiritual gifts. And that'll be a great section unto itself. We will shoot a lot of sacred cows in that particular pasture field. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you. Thank you for today. Thank you for the word of God you've given us. Thank you for its truth. Thank you for the race that you've called us to run. And help us, Father, to run that race 